Today, our scripture comes from Joshua 22, 1 through 6, and 10 through 27, as well as 30 through 31. So buckle up. <laughs> you can find that in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed the voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these days, these many days, down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to the tents in the land where your possession lies which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel. Every one of them, the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar, this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin of Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and from which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know. 
If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generation after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. When Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sydney. Would you all join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, merciful and compassionate God, this morning we grieve with those who are grieving. We cry out with those who are crying out to you for help. Look with mercy upon those this week who have experienced the earthquake, whose plans for the future have been suddenly torn apart and shattered. Father, you are the God of compassion and hope. And so we pray for you to bring these to those who are suffering today. And Lord, as we open your word this morning, may it strengthen our hearts. May it bring conviction and repentance where needed. And may we see and may we savor more of your son this morning. For we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, have you ever misunderstood someone else's intentions? Have you ever looked at something someone else has done, uh, something maybe they've said, and you've made a snap judgment? You've misunderstood what they were intending. I know I've done that over and over and over again. I can think of many times in our family I've done that. And of course, I've actually done that in the workplace. Um, I can remember a time back in my corporate days, I was working on a hot project. If you're in the workplace, you know what those hot projects are like. They have urgency, and usually they are behind schedule, and they're behind budget, and our project was behind schedule and behind budget, and the team was working long hours to catch up. And I remember vividly one evening, we were late, and I was there with my coworker, who's a great friend, we were getting ready to pack up, and the boss calls us into his office. And that couldn't be a good thing, right? So we go into the boss's office, 
And we sit down, and he's like, you know what? We got to recover some time in the schedule. We've got to work harder. So I want you guys to stay late, to do more work, to get in the lab, take some more measurements, crunch the data, give me a presentation by the morning. And so I was, I was at that point ready to go to war. I was getting ready. I was protesting in my heart. And I was ready to open my mouth and say something in defense that we were, we've been working too hard. It's, it's time for us to go home. And my good friend, he says, absolutely. We'll get this done. We're going to do this. And I, I turned to him. I'm like, I was about to say something to him. And he just reaffirms again. Brian, don't worry. We're going to get this done. And so I closed my mouth. We left the office. And I was getting ready to unleash on my friend. And he reminded me of this. He said, don't you remember? Our boss gets in like at 10.30 or 11 o'clock. Go home, be with your family, get some rest, and we can come in in our normal time. We can take the data. We can analyze it. We can generate a PowerPoint presentation, have this all ready before he even walks through the door. And that's exactly what we did. <laughs> and it actually worked. But I misunderstood my friend's intentions. I thought he was sinking us. I thought we were going to spend a few more hours that evening working hard. Well, that's what we have here going on in our passage this morning. That very long passage, you heard about those two and a half tribes, the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh. There's a misunderstanding of intentions between them and the rest of the congregation of Israel. And just to review, I know we've talked about this before, but I want to rewind and remind you of what the agreement was with those two and a half tribes. So if you remember what happened before, when they were under Moses, they had actually conquered land on the east side of the Jordan River. And those two and a half tribes looked at that land and they said, that looks lovely. We want that land. And Moses said, well, you can have that land, but you have to go over across the Jordan, and you've got to fight with your brothers, and you've got to help them conquer that land. Only then can you go back and settle on the east side. That was the agreement. And so when we open up chapter 22, we're seeing the culmination of that agreement. We're seeing Joshua summon the two and a half tribes. He commends them that they actually uh, followed through with that agreement. And then he is sending them back to the east side. And what do they do? They go back to the east side, but before they cross the Jordan River, they put up an altar of imposing size. And the rest of the congregation, they see that, and they think they know what that's about, and they get ready for war. There's a misunderstanding of intentions. And so as we unpack chapter 22, I want us to see how this affects the unity of God's people. We're first going to see the unity of God's people demonstrated then we're going to look at and see how it is threatened, and then we're going to see how it is preserved. The unity of God's people demonstrated, threatened, and then preserved. Let's look at that first point, unity demonstrated. We see this in verses 1 through 3. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. 
And so firstly, we see that unity is demonstrated in a costly commitment to each other. The two and a half tribes demonstrate that they have a costly commitment to the rest of the congregation of Israel because it says there, you have not forsaken your brothers these many days. Actually, those many days were many years of war. And what you may know, uh, if you've read the narrative, you know what happened is Moses said, go over, cross that Jordan. What they did, the men of war crossed over the Jordan and they left behind their families. Their wives and their children are over on the east side of the Jordan River. They are spending years in battle. Now, I've gone on some long business trips, but I've never spent years away from my family. That's quite the hardship, and it demonstrates a strong commitment to the unity of God's people. Back uh, when Debbie and I were first married in our uh, first few years, we joined a church. We joined our very first small group, and uh, this was at a time when I was still in school. She was supporting me, and I was working on my degree in electrical engineering, and we were living in student housing. And here's the thing about student housing. When you're no longer a student, when you graduate, you've got to get out. And that's what happened to us. I graduated. I did not have a job. We had nowhere to go. Uh, But thankfully, we had a wonderful couple in our small group. They offered for us to come live with them. And this is the thing. They lived in a very tiny house, a very tiny house. They allowed us to move our junk in with them and stay with them. They sacrificed greatly their comfort, their convenience for us. That's a demonstration of a costly commitment to preserve the unity of God's people. In Galatians 6.2, the Apostle Paul says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so unity is demonstrated in the church by a loving commitment to bear one another's burdens. Secondly, I want you to see that unity is demonstrated in a commitment to obedience. And you see that in the words in verse 2 where it says, you have kept all that Moses commanded, you have obeyed my voice, this is Joshua speaking, and you have kept the charge of the Lord. And so preserving this unity and demonstrating this unity is showing that they are in obedience to Moses, they're in obedience to Joshua, and ultimately they are subject to the Lord. And so following God and his ordained leaders is essential for unity. All you have to do is flip over to that next book in the Bible, the book of Judges, and see what it looks like when the people of God are not unified, when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And so loyalty to each other starts first with loyalty to God and to his ordained leaders. Now, I want to unpack this idea of obedience to God. And why is that? Well, the scripture itself in verse 5 unpacks it even more for us. Let's look at that, verse 5. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. What I want you to see in verse 5 is this, that obedience to the Lord, it arises out of a love relationship 
with God. You see those words, loving God, clinging to him, serving him with all your heart. That word cling, clinging to him, dabak, in the Hebrew, it means to glue yourself to that person, to adhere to that person, to hold fast to that person. It's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2, where the institution of marriage is given. A man shall leave his father and mother and dabak to his wife. He shall cling to his wife. And so it's an interesting thing that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when we think about the relationship that God wants with his people, it's described as the relationship of marriage, the most intimate relationship that humans will ever know on earth. Take a look at these scriptures. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And then in Ephesians 5, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and the bach to his wife. Hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So you see, when we're talking about obedience, it arises out of first a relationship with God, a very intimate relationship of love. God wants not just our religion or our mere obedience. He actually wants our relationship. He doesn't simply want duty. He wants us to delight in him. The God of heaven and earth, he wants to capture our hearts with love so that when we look upon his commands, when we think about following him, it's out of pure and utter devotion. It's out of delight. Psalm 40 says this, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. You know, a good barometer of your heart this morning is to measure yourself against this scripture. Do you delight to do God's law? Is it a drudgery for you to follow the Lord? When you think about coming to church, when you think about reading your Bible, When you think about praying, is it drudgery? Is it something that you feel compelled to do because you have to do it or because you get to do it? Is it your delight? I've heard this illustration used a number of times. I'm gonna bring it to you guys. Maybe you've heard of this. Uh, There was this encounter between a young boy and his mom at church. The young boy wanted to stand up in the pew and of course the mom would not allow that so she wrestles him down sits him down and holds him there. The service goes on and the boy is sitting nicely, but then he leans over to mom and he says this, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. (laughs) But But doesn't that describe us at various times where we see duty over delight? We comply with God's law, but inside We do it grudgingly. Obedience that is not delighted in is not really obedience at all. And so we see here in this first section that unity is demonstrated by a costly commitment to each other, uh, obedience to God and his ordained leaders, and an obedience to God out of a relationship of love, actually being loved first by him. Let's look at that second point, which is unity threatened in verses 10 and 12. 
And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. And so what we have here is the unity of God's people threatened. Why? Because the two and a half tribes, they set up this altar. And then you may be asking, well, why is that such a big deal? Why go to war over something like this? And to understand this, we've got to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 12 and take a look at what the scripture says there. It says, starting in verse 13, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. You see, God is telling Israel that you just can't worship me any way you want. I am telling you that I want you to worship at the altar where I prescribe that to be. It's going to be at the tabernacle. So going about and just setting up an altar randomly somewhere else would be sin against God Almighty. It's from scriptures like this that we get this principle that we follow, that we worship God only in the way he prescribes for us to worship him. We don't, it's not left, God doesn't leave it to our own imagination, our own devices to figure out how to worship him. It's too dangerous. He prescribes how we are to worship him. Why? Because it's so easy to fall over into idolatry. That's why that altar there on the bank of the Jordan is so much of a threat to God's unity, or at least it appears to be. And so it engenders a very strong reaction from the rest of the congregation of Israel. I say that because they want to go to war, but also let's look at verses 16 through 18 and verse 20, where it says, thus, the con- thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and from which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation. And then in verse 20 it says, Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. In other words, what they're saying is, what on earth are you doing? What on earth are you doing? Don't you remember what has happened to us before? You're putting up an altar. Don't you remember the lesson at Peor? Don't you remember the lesson, what happened with Achan? And if we rewind, I'll just, I'll just refresh your memory. It, it, in chapter 7 of Joshua... Achan had taken some of the devoted things, and what happened? It caused Israel to be routed in war. Scripture says here that he, Achan didn't perish alone for his iniquity. Others were taken. And then at Peor, if you want to write down the reference, it's Numbers chapter 20. And in that account, you'll see that some of Israel has gone and followed Baal of Peor. They've gone to worship another god. And it causes the Lord God to strike Israel with a plague. 24,000 
of them are killed. And so that's why the congregation of Israel is so riled up about this situation. Why? Because sin affects the entire community of God's people. I've said it before, I'll say it again. You never sin in a vacuum. And so your hidden sin, your hidden addiction, your hidden sexual immorality, your hidden pride, your envy, yes, it is having an effect on your family, it is having an effect on all the people here right now. Sin always threatens the unity of God's people. Let's look now then at the last point, unity preserved, in verses 13 through 16. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh and the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from, every, from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith? And so I want you to see in these verses, first, that unity is preserved by the confrontation of God's people with his word. So Phineas is leading this delegation, representatives from the rest of God's people, and he's reminding them of those two lessons in the past, and he's bringing the word of God to them, that this is disobedience. This is rebellion against the Lord. And I think it's very interesting here that we have Phineas as the one that's leading this. Why is that? Because if you, if you rewind to Numbers chapter 25, that episode of Baal at Peor, you'll see this very little account that Phineas the priest, he sees an Israelite man and a Midianite woman flaunting it before the congregation and he takes a spear and he rams it right through their bellies. It's gruesome. But he stops the plague of the Lord. The Lord says, look at the zeal of Phineas and the plague is stayed. Maybe that's a little bit of what's going on here. Phineas sees another threat to the community of God's people, and he sees the impending wrath of God coming, and he's ready to go to war over it. He's ready to kill people to preserve the unity of God's people. So first see that God's word is the basis for the unity of God's people. Secondly, I want you to see this in verse 19. It says this, but now... If the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. So not only are they confronting the two and a half tribes with the, the potential of sin, but look at what's happening. They're offering a generous and costly solution. That, that, that solution is, hey, if the land over in the east is causing you to stumble, if it's causing you to be drawn away from the Lord, come over and live with us. Come stay with us. We'll give you some of our land. I had a boss once in the corporate world. He's, he, he told me his philosophy about problems. He says, anytime I go to my boss with a problem, I always think about a solution first. I always come with potential solutions. That's what we have here. It's wonderful to see. Not only are they confronting with God's word, but they're offering a costly solution to the problem. They're encouraging them, come over to the Lord's land. 
And it does challenge us. When we think of the unity of God's people, what is it that we're willing to give up to preserve the unity of God's people? It might be just as simple as giving up our preferences, our pride, convenience, or comfort. Well, unity is preserved with confrontation with God's word. It's preserved with a generous and costly offer. It's also preserved when finally we discover what the true intention was of the two and a half tribes. And take a look at this in verses 22 and 23. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. If we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. I love what's going on here. They hear the confrontation with God's word. And guess what? The two and a half tribes are receiving it and they're almost echoing it back. They're saying, yep, if that's what we're doing, if we're rebelling against the Lord, the Lord should have vengeance upon us. They're saying, we understand what you're saying. We receive your word. They're seeking to understand first before being understood. Now that they understand the situation and they communicate that, they then go on to explain why it is they constructed that altar. Why did they construct that altar? Let's look at this in verses 24 and 25. This is them saying, no, but we did, not fr- we, we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. The two and a half tribes give their explanation. They give their defense of why they did that. It's not because they're going to offer burnt offerings in sacrifice. They're not going to worship the Lord there. It's not what it's all about. It's about putting up a witness, a witness between the, the congregation of Israel and the two and a half tribes that, yes, we are still part of the people of God. Even though we're separated by this Jordan River, we're on the east side, which is a, it's a tremendous boundary, we're still part of the people of God. And I love this other detail. They unveil that they actually have a hidden fear. And what is that fear? They fear that the congregation of Israel, their children, are going to cause the two and a half tribes' children to cease to worship the Lord. It's amazing. I read a a 2022 Pew Research study. It said this. It asked the question, what parents want most for their children when they reach adulthood? What do you want most for your children when when they reach adulthood? In this study, 88% of the parents said they wanted their children to have financial independence, financial stability. They wanted them to have money. Let me give you another statistic. Students who are in the church today, growing up in the church today, 66% of them, two out of every three, are going to leave the church. Once they graduate from high school, they're no longer going to engage in the church. And so if we look around Lake Baldwin Church and we look at the students here, 
If we were to follow that, that statistic that characterizes the rest of America, most of the students here, they're going to check out. They're done with church. Maybe there's a connection between these two statistics. Would it be that our heart's desire, our greatest goal for our children is that they would not cease to worship the Lord? Would that be our greatest goal for our children? That they would delight in him? One thing is for certain. If we're not delighting in the worship of the Lord, it's not gonna happen with the next generation. Well, we see in this last point that unity is preserved by confrontation with God's word over an essential. It's offering solutions even that are costly and it works hard to discover underlying intentions. The reality this morning is throughout all of the history of God's people, the unity of God's people has always been threatened. It gets threatened by the world. It gets threatened by our enemy, the devil. Most of all, it gets threatened by us. We, this is a sad reality that we do a pretty good job ourselves of dividing the people of God. We don't need help from the world. We don't need help from the devil. We can do it all on our own. Because here's the sad reality. When we, when we think about the scripture this morning, all of us, I do this myself, I fail to bear the burdens of my brothers and sisters. And even if I do bear their burdens, am I sitting on the outside but standing on the inside? Am I doing it begrudgingly? Am I doing it because I feel like it's something that I have to do? Or am I doing it because I delight in, in it? Unity is a costly thing. Here's the wonderful news this morning. There is one, Christ, who offer the ultimate costly solution to our problems. He's the one, at every point where we fail, he's the one who succeeded. We can't bear one another's burdens with delight. He does that with full delight. He does it according to the will of the Father. He does it for the Father's glory. We do things for our glory. We do things for our preference. We do things out of our own comfort and convenience. The Lord Jesus set all of that aside. His privilege, his comfort, his convenience, so that he would have a people for himself. Our sin, it, it contaminates and affects the community. His perfect obedience unites the people of God. So look to Christ. Debock to him, cling to him, in faith. If you are in Christ this morning, I encourage you again, cling to him in faith. Look to him. He has succeeded at every point that we have failed. He gives us his perfect righteousness, his perfect record. If you're here this morning, you've yet to follow Christ, and you, and you think you're hearing that we're calling you to duty, that we're calling you to mere obedience, that's not it at all. We're calling you to be in relationship with a loving God to cling to him in faith. If you do, you're clinging to the one who unites heaven and earth, and one day, one day in heaven, it will be revealed. There will no longer be male or female. 
black or white, Republican or Democrat, Presbyterian or Baptist, but there will be one. We will all be one in Christ. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that there is one who delights in doing your law. He succeeds every time we fail to do that. He grants us his perfect righteousness, his perfect record, and that is by grace. He wipes away our sins and separates them as far as the east is from the west. His perfect blood perfectly cleanses us. Our only defense is his righteousness, and we give you great praise. We give you thanks for such a great and loving and awesome God. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.